0: The Sunday Sermons Podcast. Today we're going to keep kind of marinating in a story of a guy named Jehoshaphat. He was one of the kings uh, back in the day. Um, his story that we're going to look at the most is in chapter twenty, but it starts in eighteen. Um, he was a pretty good guy overall, but he made a huge mistake at the beginning of Second Chronicles chapter eighteen. He was the king of Israel. Um, I'm sorry, got that backwards. He was a king of Judah. And at this point, the kingdom of Israel was split. So he's he's the king of Judah. And he marries the daughter of the king and queen of Israel. Now, this sounds pretty good on the surface, except the king and queen of Israel at the time were Ahab and Jezebel. And even if you didn't grow up in church, you probably recognize those two names, or at least Jezebel, because they were both scenery-chewing villains nonstop. They were just evil every single time you see them, period. And he allies himself politically, relationally, ties that up. And the first thing that happens is he has to go to war side by side with Ahab. That story and how that all works is its own thing. And I wish we had time in your study guide. If you've got this today, I hope you go back. It says, just read all three of these chapters, 18, 19, and 20. But you need to know this, long, deep, really incredible story short, here's what happened in the life of Jehoshaphat. After this huge mistake, he has to go to war. Ahab ends up dying, but Jehoshaphat's faith in God just increases exponentially. He goes back to the kingdom of Judah and begins to just transform everything, trying his very best to align everything with God's will for the first time in a really long time. And so when we start chapter 20, all of that is what is meant by these first two words, after this. You ready? Okay, so here's where the story actually begins today. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Meonites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you. And then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. Once again, as we've said several times over the last several weeks, you never see all of the spiritual disciplines just listed in, in a list, kind of like the Ten Commandments. But you see all of these things that we're exploring, these ways that God has given us to really get some work done with Him, really, really build our relationships with others. <clears throat> Excuse me. We see these throughout the scripture. And in this case, you see two things happen at once the two things we're talking about today fasting and fellowship. A lot of times we think of fasting as a very individual thing, and it can be, and it should be sometimes, but sometimes, often actually in the scriptures, it was done in groups as well. Fellowship is something you can do kind of alone, you and God, but it's primarily you and God and everybody else who follows God all at the same time. But here in this story, we see all of this happening because they know somehow or another we've got to hear from God. Somehow or another, we've got to get God's help in this. All right. So if you've ever tried fasting, there's usually two pretty extreme feelings about this. One is, this is the worst thing I've ever tried. And one is, this is actually pretty good. I saw a meme this week. It said, why do they call it fasting if the day goes by so slow? <laughs> uh, can, I, can I get a witness? Anybody? Okay, there you go. Yeah. On the other hand, here's a quote from St. Thomas Aquinas. He, he really got a lot out of it. He says, fasting cleanses the soul, raises the mind, subjects one's flesh to the spirit, renders the heart contrite and humble, scatters the clouds of concupiscence, which is an old word that means sexual perversion, quenches the fire of lust, kindles the true light of chastity. I'm personally not sure that going without food does all that. <clears throat> but it sure does empty you out of stuff and make you, make you available to hear whatever God is trying to get you to do. I like what C.S. Lewis said. This, this I really believe. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And at the very least, what fasting does is remind us that the things that we think we can't live without we actually can live without. The things that we feel like, well, no matter what God does or what anybody else does for me, at least I can make sure I get this thing every single day. What if you don't have that? You're still okay. At the bottom line, bare minimum fasting reminds you of that, but it has the potential to do so much more. Um, I'd like you to try something real, really quick with me, if you would. Just, We're going to take a big, deep breath. When I go like this, everybody just inhale. And when I go like this, we're going to exhale. Okay, here we go. Big, deep breath. I feel better already, don't you? That's good. Okay, but let's try it this time. This time, we're going to breathe out first. Breathe out as much as we can, just hold it for a second. Okay, don't stress out. I won't make you hold it very long. But then we're going to breathe in. Okay, let's try this. Here we go. You're a little more thankful for that one, right? (laughs) That's how fasting works. Uh, When you go without something, even for just a little bit of time, and you come back to it, it increases the gratitude. Even people who aren't believers try it sometimes. For example, Chris Martin of the band Coldplay says this, When you don't have food in your life just for a day, it makes you realize you're lucky to have it the next day. So the day after fasting, the music that comes out will be very joyous. It's working for him so far. Here's the bottom line, though. If you'd say this out loud with me, and if you're filling out spaces, this is the first one. God loves to fill empty vessels. This is empty, by the way. Don't stress out. I'm not going to spill coffee everywhere. God loves to fill empty vessels. Let's say that one more time. God loves to fill empty vessels. And that is why, brothers and sisters, all of these disciplines in one way or another either empty us, or help us be refilled by the things of God himself. That's why they do that. Because otherwise it just takes forever and ever. If you ever try to like wash something out, and there's like a little bit left in the bottom of the pitcher or the cup, and you just put it under the water, it takes a really long time, right? But if you dump it out, and you kind of clean it a little bit with a paper towel or something, and then you start washing it, it goes a lot faster, doesn't it? That's why we fast. That's why we do all these things that help us drain out all this stuff that clogs us. And fasting reminds us of two very, very important things. Number one, who we are. And number two, whose we are. If you're a note taker, those are the next two blanks. So all that together says this, God loves to fill empty vessels. Fasting reminds us who we are and whose we are. And who we are are people made in the image of God himself. Underneath the brokenness and the stuff that we have messed that image up in so many ways, we're still somehow somehow made in the same design that God wanted us to be designed in the first place. Somehow or another, there's traces of that. And when we fast, we realize I have a lot more self-control than I thought I did. I can survive things I didn't think I could survive. Most of us, we, we think we're starving to death if we don't eat until lunch, right? And you go a day or two, you're like, oh my gosh, I, I, guess, I guess I'm okay. I, this, uh, we're all right. But most of all, especially if you do this in honor of God, you're not just trying to write a better song for your next hit record like Coldplay. You're actually trying to seek God. When you empty yourself, it's a great way to remember whose we are, that God is the one who provides every good and perfect thing that there ever is. I love what Rich Mullins said about who we are. He says, we are frail. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Forged in the fires of human passion, choking on the fumes of selfish rage. And with these, our hells and our heavens, so few inches apart, we must be awfully small and not as strong as we think we are. Because when we fast, we remember where the strength really comes from. Whatever there is that is good in us, who we are, actually traces back to God. All the brokenness is us. All the goodness is God. And when we remember that we are his, that reunites us with the real strength in life. We see Jesus himself even practicing this. Right after he got baptized and he started his ministry, the very first thing that happened, if you remember, is the Holy Spirit leads him out into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And what's he do? He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And we know from science and medicine that this is about as long as you can go for it really starts getting dangerous. We, we start thinking that maybe a day or two is really dangerous. But you can actually go over a month and you're okay. You're not going to die. But, but after 40 days, your body starts eating its own like organs and stuff. It starts getting dangerous. So he's as physically empty as he can be. And yet after all this time, he is as strong and ready as he needed to be to fight the devil. And he fought him pretty hard. He beat him pretty hard. Brendan Manning says the temptation of the age is to look good without being good. And What all of these disciplines in one way or another are about is never about looking good. It's not about trying to judge ourselves or judge other people about how well or how much we practice these. It's just about these are the things that actually help us get good. They're the things that actually help you get good. It's like practicing if you're trying to learn how to play an instrument or do a certain sport or whatever other skill you're trying to learn. It's that endless practice that actually makes you good. You don't just believe in yourself, right? You don't just try it. You don't just go out there with a really good attitude. All of those are important, but what really gets you good is the hours and hours of putting in the work, doing that jump shot over and over and over and over again. Shaquille O'Neal's a great example. I I like Shaq. He's funny and and, uh, does a lot of good things. But it used to drive me nuts when he was still playing ball because this guy's making millions of dollars. He's seven foot, what is he, seven foot two or something. He can just dunk like this. Couldn't hit a free throw to save his life. And I'm like, come on, dude. Like, like. Go out there and practice. You're getting paid a lot of money to make this happen. And, and, and that's me being sarcastic and mean, and I'm sorry. Jack, if you're watching, whoever else is watching today, <laughs> I'm generally a compassionate person. But it's the point it, that you don't get good just by being immensely talented and gifted. You don't get talented by getting paid to do something. You get good by doing it over and over and over again. And these spiritual disciplines are things that help us get good, not just look good. That's why throughout the Old Testament, God kept saying things like this to, uh, to his people through the prophets. Zechariah 7.5 says, Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? There's so many other passages like that. Jesus himself in the New Testament says, when you fast, notice he says when, not if. I think that's significant. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting but only to your father who is unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Again, this is, this is a, an, another reminder. We're not talking about getting legalistic here. If we were being legalistic, we'd all like, every time we fast, we go, wait, I gotta go buy some oil, put it on my head. How many times a day do I need to wash my face? That's not what Jesus is talking about. Back then, that was kind of basic hygiene to them. I think today Jesus would say something more like, Take a shower, put on your regular clothes, just go about your business. The point is he doesn't want us to make it obvious that we're fasting. Does that make sense? Okay, but here, here's the thing. The Pharisees were the people who were really good at all of these things and failed completely. And I, I think it's just so important to keep noticing that they were Jesus' biggest enemies on this earth. Legalism is not the answer here. But truly doing these things from the heart, in secret if necessary, in public when we can, these are the things that actually really do change us. Remember Jesus' story about the Pharisee and the tax collector? How many remember that one? Okay, most of you. Basically, it's a story Jesus made up to make a point. In the Bible, we call those the Parables. But he said a Pharisee went to the temple to pray and also a tax collector. And when the Pharisee got there, he, he prays out loud and really loudly, God, I thank you that I'm not like everybody else. I thank you that I fast and I tithe and I don't sin like that tax collector over there. Actually calls the guy out. And the tax collector beats on his own chest and says, God, I'm so sorry I have sinned, please forgive me. And Jesus says, that's the guy Who's going to get heard? You know why? Because God loves to fill empty vessels. And, and if we're doing all these things, no matter how valuable they are, if we're doing them just to look at other people, we're wasting our time. If we're doing them because we're genuinely submitting to God, we're trying to be emptied of all the stuff of earth and filled with the stuff of God, then it really does work. It helps us become good, not just look good. Well, back to the story about Jehoshaphat. They come together, they fast, they pray. And then the king, after quite some time of them all doing this together, he stands up and he leads them in a prayer. And this prayer starts out, it's so beautiful. You need to go back and read this whole story. I'm telling you, it's so good. But he kind of makes it personal with God. He says, listen, um, we're we're your people. And we've really been trying lately to to really follow you. And these people are attacking us. They're attacking your family. What are you going to do about it? He says, oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. If you would, I'd like for you to, to pray that prayer with me really quick. Just those last lines. Let's go back here. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. First, before you say it, I want you to think about Because I know a couple of situations in my own life right this second that I don't know, two very specific ones in my heart that I'm praying about every single day. I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on God. And I'm expecting him to do that. And I'd like you to think of at least one for yourself. And then as we pray this prayer together, I want you to really pray that. We're gonna say it twice together. Um, We do not know what to do, our eyes are on you. You ready? We do not know what to do but our eyes are on you. One more time. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. See what that is? That's fellowship. That's where we all unite to do something that's right, something that's true, something that's good, something that honors God. We we team up to do what he tells us to do. It's exactly what's happening here in this story. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord and with their little ones, their wives and their children. And they waited, they just waited there until God answered somehow. And he answers through this guy named Jehaziel the Levite who hadn't been given any prophecies up to that point. This is a guy, he shows up in the story as a prophet and everybody's like, what in the world? But he has this very specific plan that uh, God gives them that they're gonna follow. Here's here's how Jehoshaphat and everybody responded. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites, the Kohites, and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. And by the way, those aren't just a bunch of random names to skip over. Um, Those are names that you see several times. They were very well-known, very skilled worship leaders for the people of Israel. And in fact, at the bottom here of your thing where it says bonus reading, there's a list of several psalms there. And those are either psalms that are written by the sons of Korah, which there's a whole bunch of them. Or there are psalms that start out with the, the lyrics that we know they sang to God here. Because here's what happened. Well, we'll get there in a second. We'll finish the story in a minute. Everybody still with me? All right, praise God. Here's the second thing that we know that God loves to do. He loves to attend family reunions. God loves to attend family reunions. I don't mean just any random family reunion. How many have ever been to a family reunion and you're pretty sure God wasn't there or at least he wasn't driving the train? Okay, yeah. Every time you get any random family together, that's not a guarantee that God's gonna show up. What we're talking about here is that God himself, when we, his people meet in his name, he's gonna do stuff. And throughout the scripture, we see this. He promises to show up. I like that, that it's kind of a newer phrase that's used differently these days than when I was growing up. But I like that. If somebody's really going to do something, they're really going to not just be present, but you're going to know they're present. They're making a difference. They say, hey, you showed up today. Anybody else heard this? I like that. And that's what we're saying here. God promises to show up somehow whenever we meet or worship or pray in his name. And we experience true Christian fellowship when we team up to do his will. That includes worship, that includes communion and giving and things that we do all the time here in this room. It also includes all the things that we do outside of these rooms, all the stuff that we do out in the community, the stuff we do to spread his word around the world. When we team up to do his will, we're experiencing fellowship. When we do stuff in his name, by his authority, we're doing it because that's what this family does. Does anybody else have some of those things where you go, like in my family, they say, well, there's a, that's a prior thing. Does anybody have that? Or in my wife's family, they go, well, that's a broils thing, right? Does anybody else have that? When we do a family of God thing, when we do a Jesus thing and we all team up together and the only reason we're doing it is because it's a Jesus thing. And here we go. God shows up. A.W. Tozer says, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. That's deep. You should look that up online or something and come back to that one later. But the bottom line is the best way for us to find unity is to unify on God, not just try to be unified about unity. Part of the truth of the Christian faith, Rich Mullins says, is that people are made in the image of God and they're loved by him. And if that is true, you cannot love God and treat people with contempt at the same time. We see these ideas, fasting and fellowship. We see this, God's people teaming up to empty their cups and to do stuff together, to regroup in his name. So many times throughout scripture, here's a whirlwind tour in Esther chapter four, right before she goes and has her big heroic moment, goes to present herself before the king and start start the process of asking for his help. She has the entire nation fast and pray with her. When Jonah finally gets around to go into Nineveh and preach in one sermon after all the running and all the other stuff in that story, he finally gets there and the entire kingdom from the king down fasts and prays together for God's mercy. And guess what? God shows up every single one of those times. When the church formed in Acts chapter 2, They didn't just form and have this great big Pentecost happy day service, whole bunch of baptisms, whole bunch of celebration. They changed how they lived. It says they devoted themselves to this new lifestyle. And that new lifestyle included four things that are named right there. The apostles teaching, which is what we're doing right here, studying what, trying to apply God's word to actual life, especially focused on Jesus himself. Uh, To prayer, to breaking of bread. We just practiced that together as well. Fellowship. This idea of teaming up to get all of this stuff done. They were devoted to it. Their lives were defined by this. And when they were devoted to that, all of those things, everything changed not only was this just their regular rhythm, when they really needed to hear from God, they would get together and especially fast and pray together. For example, in Acts 13, it says, Now in the church in Antioch there were prophets and teachers, it lists a whole bunch of them, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. That's where the idea of mission trips started, y'all. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for this kind of thing happening. They fasted and they prayed together to hear from God. And God said, here's what I want to happen next. And then they did it. At the end of almost every one of the books that, that Paul writes, he closes with something like this. This is from 2 Corinthians. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ... And the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The Holy Spirit is the part of God that, that tangibly moves throughout the whole Bible. I'm not saying that it's, we're not getting into the deep theology of it, but it, there's God the Father, there's God the Son. And, and whenever God, in Old Testament or New Testament, empowers somebody when he shows up, it's the Holy Spirit. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, that's, that's when God is showing up among us because we are teaming up to follow him. That's why John writes, we, that he writes everything that he writes so that you also may have fellowship with us. A real quick word of warning. We're about to turn the last corner here this morning and start wrapping up. But Let me give you one quick word of warning. This idea of teaming up is so powerful that if we team up with the wrong people, just like Jehoshaphat did at the beginning of this story, it leads us into places we never should be. It makes all of these other things so much harder, so much harder than they ever need to be. And that is what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 6 when he says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? A lot of times I've heard this verse used to just tell people not to date or marry people who are not believers. It absolutely, absolutely applies to that. But it's bigger than that. This is some of the kindest, most practical advice that God gives us. When you team up with somebody hardcore. You're yoked with them. Those yokes they go across you like this and hook both of you. You have to work side by side. You team up with somebody, anybody for any reason, and you're that locked in, you're going to end up going the same direction with them. That's just how it's going to be. You need to be really careful who you team up with. But when we as God's people very intentionally take Jesus's invitation to accept his yoke, be yoked with him. When we very intentionally yoke ourselves with each other and go in the direction Jesus is pointing us, there's so much power in that. But part of the reason life is so hard sometimes is because we have all yoked ourselves with people and ideas and time killers and I don't know what all that take us a different direction. And it's not that you're so evil and so broken in and out of yourself. You've just teamed up with the wrong stuff. But there's power in breaking it. That's why we do things like fast, to empty those vessels again, to think clearly, to realize, do I really need this every day? Do I really need to go this direction every single day? What is God actually saying to me? In Isaiah, God says, is this not the kind of fasting I've chosen to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light, God says, then your light will break forth like the dawn your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. And then you will call and the Lord will answer and you will cry for help and he will say, here am I. Does that sound good to you guys? Amen. What if we all chose to fast, not just from food, but from anything that's locked us into going a bad direction. Maybe that's our entertainment. Maybe you could cancel Netflix and Disney Plus and who knows what else for for a whole month. You're not gonna die. Nobody died before those got invented like less than a decade ago. What What if we gave up eating a specific thing and put that money somewhere else? What if we gave up, I don't know, that's between you and God. But if you do something very intentionally and you say, instead of this, I'm going to do this. I'm going to break free from this habit. I am done with doing this thing. Instead, I'm going to do this. And we do that out of, out of humility and out of, out of just trying, not to trying to look good, but just trying to be good. We're trying to do this just to collectively submit to God. You can't imagine the power in this. Here's how the story of Jehoshaphat ends. The next day after that huge prayer and fasting thing, they go out early in the morning. They go out into the wilderness and they do the plan that God had given them, which is they send the praise band out in front. I mean, normally you'd think if you're going into war, you want your scariest, biggest, best armed people in the front, right? And you, the other army the army needs to hear something like, freedom! Freedom! You know what I'm saying? You want that kind of stuff happening. And instead, here they come and they see Israel off in the distance. And here out in front, all these guys with harps and and some cymbals. And they're going, give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his love endures forever. Terrifying, right? (laughs) Probably for them. But you know what happened? I hope you've heard this story before, but even if you have, you need to reread it later today. Here's what happened. God fought for them. Not one of his people died that day. He made all the other armies, those other three kingdoms that had teamed up to fight Israel, he made them fight each other. And that's that's the only violence that happened that day. They just kept marching and singing and then picking up loot. That's it. That was the whole battle. It's one of the best battles in the entire army because it started where everything needs to start. They remembered together that God likes to fill empty vessels. And so they emptied themselves before God and said, fill us with what you want to fill us with. And when they did that together, God showed up because God loves family reunions. I don't know what you need to do about that today, but you're going to have a chance right now. We're going to sing together like we always do. You're going to have a chance to respond to God. On your note here, there's some two places there to just say, Lord, I will. You finish that sentence. You can write it down. You can sing it. You can pray. It, you can write yourself a note in your phone. Make yourself an alarm. If you've got business that needs taken care of with God today, please come up here to the front over here or over here if you want to pray. If you want to keep it private, come to the back. We just had two baptisms on Friday. So by the way, I just want you to know, if, if you're worried about the big crowd, you can do this separately too. But if you've got business that you want God, you need to take care of with God today, would you take care of it today? Be bold, be courageous. Let's do it while we all stand and sing.